Hey everyone, it's Amanda Wiss, and you are listening to The Chattering Hour. Nick Vince here. This week's guest on The Chattering Hour really stormed onto the movie scene in the 1980s with a string of very successful films such as Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Silverado, Better Off Dead, and of course, A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we're back with our very special guest, Amanda Wiss, whose performance as Tina Gray in A Nightmare on Elm Street really cemented her in the horror genre. I'd like to start, if I may, by going back to the very beginning. Okay. Um, Do you come from an acting family? I do not. Well, my older sister uh, studied, uh, got a degree in theatre from UCLA and had, had... went to New York and did a few plays and uh, did some regional theater as well. Very talented. And then she, uh, and then went on to do tons of commercials. She was in the seventies, the good morning America girl for McDonald's. So she had billboards all over the city and it's Terrace Clayton. Um, She, so she was, so she was my inspiration. She's, um, so I sort of followed in her footsteps, but our, our parents weren't um, in the business at all. My mom was a homemaker. My dad was a contractor. Right, right. And where did you train? I went to the Lisa, sorry, I just got Invisaligns. And so I'm lisping. So I just want everyone to know I don't normally lisp. (laughs) But I didn't wear them enough hours yesterday, so I just can't take them out. Um, I just got them. So my... my Got it. Our secret. I know. So I feel like I'm like 14 going on 90. (laughs) I'm like a 14-year-old girl with braces. Um, So just so everyone knows that. Um, uh, um, Wait, what was the question again? (laughs) (laughs) I I understand that. Where did you train? I trained initially as a teenager for two years at the Lee Strasberg Institute in Los Angeles under Sally Kirkland um, and various other teachers that came and went, including um, Lee Strasberg. And then I I studied for, I studied uh, with Larry Moss. And then I studied Shakespeare um, with the people that put on Shakespeare in the Park in New York. And then I studied with, for many years, with a, a teacher who's passed away now, Jean Biwa. And then I, most recently, for you know, the last ten years, I've studied with Stuart Rogers, um, who's amazing, and he's an amazing writer and director. And um, I just, I, I think it's, I like being in class. I, I mean, I'm not in class at the moment, but I like that structure where you're you know maybe playing characters you don't normally get cast in because you're not famous enough to get the role from um you know the the four actresses my age that do all the roles um so uh I, I really like that and I like learning and growing and um so I'm sort of a big right. fan keeping right. tuned yeah it, it's it is extraordinary isn't it I um a couple of years ago I was able to do a uh, a lesson with an actress, a Shakespeare class, funnily enough, um, with an actress who I'd watched on TV as a kid playing Shakespeare. And so, and I, I was just 
basically I was a fanboy. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I did learn quite a bit, but I, it was yeah. like mostly by observing and watching and so on. And it's yeah. like. Well, when um, I took the Shakespeare class, the thing that I, I was so nervous getting up in front of people to do, you know, my Shakespearean monologues and my scenes. But what I really came away with was the teacher whose name is escaping me at the moment. Sorry, that's why I didn't mention it. Um, sure. It's the Invisalign. <laughs> Everything's being readjusted and I can't, I can't think straight. Um, uh, with all the history I learned, like that he went into such great detail over what every word meant. And I was really young. I've studied it more since. And my boyfriend who um, is a phenomenal theater actor does a lot of Shakespeare. So I'm around it a lot. Um, but uh, uh, he just went into such great Mm. detail of the history of when the plays were written and what everything meant and uh you know what kind of stone things were built with and stuff so you really I really walked away with a rich um admiration for and uh you know I, I just it right. makes it more fun to watch the plays because I I now I'm like I know what that means and I know why they're saying that and what part of history this was taking place in and Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, and that massively helps if you're watching Shakespeare because there is so, it works on so many different levels anyway. So, what was your first Hollywood acting job? Well, my very first Hollywood acting job was uh, my very first thing I did when I was eleven, but I wasn't paid very much for. I did a play called The Innocence. And then the following year when I was 12, I did The Bad Seed. But when I was 15, I started doing commercials. So my actual first paying job was a series of Pepsi commercials where I was the tan, long blonde hair beach girl who could take a Hobie cat out over the waves and could roller skate and you know ride a roller coaster a million times and then still drink her Pepsi. Well, that was me as a teenager. <laughs> that was my first <laughs> So the innocence, this, is this the turn of the screw play? Yes, the William Inge play, yeah. That's, yeah, one of my favorite film yes. uh, oh, The movie's so good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. So following on from that, and so you, you landed the role of Lisa in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. How was that experience? Was that your first big film or? Yeah, I mean, really up until that point, well, up in, my very first theatrical job was an episode of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. I played Laura, a wood nymph who was in love with him. And I, I think most of my lines were, I love you, Buck Rogers. And then um, I did a, as a young actress, I did quite a few pilots that didn't go. So, and then I did a TV movie with Lonnie Anderson called My Mother's Secret Life for ABC movies. And at the time it was the highest rated TV movie ever. And then I think that's what helped me get Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Right. Um, and so that experience, like when I walked into audition for it, it was um, the casting director, Amy Heckerling and Judge Reinhold. And they just had Judge and I do an improv of sitting at the basketball game, you know, like being a boyfriend and girlfriend and then breaking up. And then um, they just said, do you want this part? I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, it was really fun. Like it was, I mean, obviously so many amazing actors in that movie. And 
of all the things I've ever done, literally every single person in that movie either went on to be a huge movie star, a journeyman character actor like me, or left the business and are hugely successful in whatever film, whatever you know uh, field they chose. So it's it was some remarkable uh, yeah. pot of energy and people that um, you know Amy Heckerling. She's a genius, and working with her was amazing. And you know, I've really only worked with six female directors in my entire career, which I think is shameful either either women don't want to hire me or I just haven't had the opportunity but um she is magical I and I still stay in touch with her I I adore her because I was curious because you, you mentioned uh, what it was like working with her do you see a real difference in the styles of directing between male and female directors no, I don't think so because, I mean, in the sense that all women are unique individuals, so their directing style is unique as, as well as men. Um, I just, I think the difference is it's just a little bit different perspective sometimes, the female perspective, but it's not necessarily, it's subtle. Um, and it's a, you know, we can't help as a, as individuals to, tell a story differently than the next person. And then I think gender wise, I think we can tend, we tend to highlight certain things differently, um, but it's subtle and, um, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's wonderful female directors and I'm sure there's horrible female directors just like there are men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but I do think that the storytelling perspective is different. And I, I think um, it's good to have that balance of, female writers and directors and producers that are possibly telling a story with a different energy about yeah. something than perhaps a man and, and neither has more or less value i just think it's a nice balance sure 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 and um fairly soon after that you were cast in a nightmare on elm street how did yeah. you get cast in nightmare it's kind of a interesting story in, in some ways, um, possibly to someone out there. Um, uh, <laughs> Me, I'm, I'm interested to know. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I got the script. Uh, my agents didn't want me to do a horror film. Um, they said that's like the end of your career, because back in that day, you were either mm. in horror movies. It, back in the day, you were either a TV actress, a movie actor, or you were in horror films. Like there, there was very few people that crossed over in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Um, it was like soap opera people didn't do nighttime TV. Like there was just these rules that completely don't apply anymore and, and stopped applying shortly after I did Nightmare on Elm Street. But um, anyway, my agents didn't want me to do it, but they're like, they sent the script over, read it. And I've never really watched a lot of horror. So I was like, but I'd read a couple scary books and I thought, well, this just reads like the scariest effing novel that I have ever read in my entire life. And so I went and met with Wes. It was very sort of professorial and avuncular. You know, we had on like a nice chinos and a shirt and, and he, he has, he had at the time, you know, two, two daughters are age and um are like I'm the queen of England mine and Heather's and all the kids in the movie um, <laughs> um and so he he was just great and I was like 
I don't, I've, I've never really watched any horror films and I don't really know what I do in a horror film. He's like, I don't want you to do anything like you're in a horror film. Just, you know, read it like you're a human being having this experience. And I was like, well, that's new. And so um, I read it and I read for Nancy, the lead, all the girls read for Nancy. And then I got a callback for Tina. And when I walked in, it was really only a few people at the callback and he brought me and Heather Langenkamp and uh, uh, Nick Corey and Johnny Depp into the room and had us do an improv and then told us in the room that we had the part. So he kind of picked us from the original audition. So it was really, that doesn't happen very often. And um, we all just clicked and we were all having a great time. We had, we figured, you know, we'll never get these parts. And um, and then my agents didn't want me to do it. They, they were like, you booked this, but you should pass on it. And I was like, I think I really like this director. I don't know who he is, even though he'd already done all these things. Um, but I liked him. He was really nice to me. And I think I want to do this. So I'm glad. Uh, that's fascinating. I think particularly about that thing of bringing your actors in together to see how they gel, particularly as they, you know, they're playing friends. They're all part of this group. So you mentioned, you know, you got them really well during the audition. Did that kind of carry through into the filming itself, that sense of camaraderie? It did. It didn't. It continues to this day. Uh, we're all still good friends. I mean, albeit, you know, Johnny lives in a different stratosphere, but we're all still friendly and friends and see each other a lot. And um, and the, the weird thing was, you know, I did Nightmare on Elm Street and then literally a month later did Better Off Dead. And then a month after that, I started Silverado. So they were all in a string. And then through my birthday parties over the years, those groups have merged. And a lot of us are all still really good friends. With throwing a few people from Fast Times too. So I call them, because I didn't go to college. So they're like my college. Right. Yeah. right, 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 right. And you mentioned that you'd not really been a fan of uh, horror films before you got the script for Nightmare. Are you, are you a fan of horror films now? No, but not because I don't think they're amazing. And I've been in a few and I, I love the, the, the community. I just don't like being scared. I just don't like it. I like sci-fi and fantasy and I like rom-coms. I don't like being scared. I, I know that it's a, an amazing way to work out our lizard brain fears and um, to really tap into our primal fears and it's a great way to release them. And I'm like, screw it. I don't want the release. I don't like being scared. <laughs> I don't, I'm going to meditate. I'm going to meditate and that's how I'm going to release my primal fears. <laughs> Sounds very sensible. Sounds like a very <laughs> sensible attitude to life. Um, I was, so I was curious then when the film actually came out, were you kind of aware how bigoted or would become particularly? What was your kind of reaction once the film was released and you saw it up on the big screen? Well, okay, interestingly enough, I didn't see it on the big screen. A couple things happened. I went to go to the screening and my boyfriend at the time made us late and the fire marshal wouldn't let me in. And then we went to Westwood, which was, it was opening at this big theater in Westwood, which is um, near UCLA in Los Angeles. And um, it was sold out shows that evening and so I was like well screw it and so I didn't see it till it came out on VHS and you know at the time when it was out it it didn't really gain the momentum it has today until it came out on VHS and it became um mm -hmm. something people watched 
repeatedly and that the four of us kids and Robert England became their friends to some degree. Um, uh, and I think that's true with a lot of 80s films. Like, you know, they came out right before the advent of the, you know, take home movie. And so people always say, what was so special about 80s movies? And a lot of it is it's the first generation of films people could take home and make their own and sit and watch repeatedly with their family and watch them at sleepovers. And you didn't have to wait and go through the TV guide to see if it's gonna play at some point. You, you know, like every year, The Wizard of Oz or something like that, you could take them home and they became part of family tradition. So. I didn't know really until about a year or so after it came out, I was at my mom's house helping hand out candy on Halloween and about four little Freddies came up to the front door. And I was like, this movie really means something to everybody. And then funny sidebar to that, there was a, a group of kids, young adults, whatever, dressed like Freddie and stuff. And I was like, I'm in that movie. I play Tina. And they're like, yeah, right. No, you didn't. <laughs> and they left and I was like, Screw you. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember Hugh Jackman telling the story of you know, going trick-or-treating with his son who wanted to be dressed as Wolverine. And the, everyone just kept on looking at his son, completely yeah. ignoring the fact that yeah. Hugh Jackman was standing there in front. So, you know. It's out of context, right? Yeah. 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 My mom lived in Manhattan Beach and at the now Manhattan Beach is sort of co-opted by Hollywood but back in that day it was like might as well have lived on Mars it was this sleepy little beach town and so it was out of context people are like yeah. no actors live in Manhattan Beach now now everyone lives in Manhattan Beach <laughs> and, <I don't. laughs> and I'm curious was the idea of a sequel ever discussed whilst you were filming no no uh, no, and and then and then Wes never hired me again. He hired a bunch of people again, and I think I lost Wes in his divorce from his wife at the time because she and I became friends, and then they got divorced, and then I never heard from him again. So I always say I so I I lost Wes in his divorce. Right, <laughs> never, right. You know, at the time he was like, "You're an amazing actress. Oh my god, I love working with you. I can't wait to do more movies with you. You're amazing." And then crickets. <laughs> Always the way. Always, yes, yeah. These things, are, yeah. So, I think one of the most memorable things about Nightmare on Elm Street is your death sequence. Yeah. How on earth? Well, I, I suspect I know how you filmed it, but there seemed to be an awful lot involved in it. So, from your perspective, what it, what was it like filming that sequence? It was, it was challenging and interesting. You know, it was a huge soundstage at the old Desilu um, studios in Hollywood. And they built the bedroom on basically a fulcrum that had like a hand crank that, you know, the grips and the electricians were out turning. And it's the same room they used for Johnny Depp as well. And um, so, you know, everything in the room was nailed down, shellacked, glued, and there were two seats affixed to the, the floor on the sidewall and that's where the cameraman and whatever actor was in the scene with me would sit strapped in so the camera always had the perspective of the room right up right. and then um, as it as so basically we didn't have a lot of takes because it was very low budget and once the blood was introduced you know we couldn't really go back and clean up the wallpaper especially back in the day they used really goopy stain in blood. Kensington Gore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. But, but 
you'd be covered in blood for like a week. It just wouldn't, well, you're pink and your hair stained. Um, I think they've uh, fixed that since then, but um, uh, it was just, you know, we choreographed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it and rehearsed it because like I said, you know, we shot it in increments, but uh, you know, there was no going back. So mm. I felt like a lot of responsibility that it had to be just right, or I had to be in it to win it. Like I had right. to drop into it, let it live through me and not screw it up. Um, and so once they started, they would crank the, so the, you know, I started on the bed and mm. then I get flipped up to the ceiling and that's them. They flip the room and then being dragged, I had to act like I was being dragged. Like I had to propel myself in a sort of undulating way that looked like I was being dragged because obviously there was nobody really dragging me. And then at some point doing it, I just got complete vertigo. I was on the ceiling and I looked down and I saw the bed and I freaked out. Like my brain just completely believed I was about to fall. Like I was like heaving. It was so scary. I started starting, I was just like, oh my God, get me out of here. I can't do this. I can't do this. And um, there's a great picture of Wes and I don't, I don't have it on me, but um, I'm squatting down and Wes sticks his head up through the window because the room is on its side. And he's like, you're okay. You're okay. We're, you're on the floor. I'm on the floor. And, and he's like, stand up. I'm like, the only reason I'm not falling is because I'm squatting. <laughs> like I would not stand up. I thought I was going to fall. And then after about a minute in the room, he goes, oh my God, I have to get out of here. This is so disorienting. I feel like I'm going to, you know, pass out. And then he was like, all right, we need to finish this up. This child is, is really suffering. And he talks about that in the documentary, Never Sleep Again, that he was like, he had, he was, you know, he was getting frustrated with me because I was panicking and then when he poked his head in he was like oh my god I don't even know how she lasted that long in there because it was definitely it was very disorienting so I think all of that helped bring a visceral reality to the scene because I really was terrified and upset and um and uh you know so I think everything just aligned and plus it was all practical effects. So there's no trick of the eye where your brain is going, that's fake. It just, it was all very visceral and practical. And so I think in the end, just all the forces aligned to make something kind of magical in sure. a weird way. Sure, sure. Do you have a favorite moment from making the film? You know, I the most fun I had um, was doing the out in front of the high school scenes where we shot a day of us like walking up to the school, walking out. And we were all, that might have even been the first day, but we were all just having so much fun and, and enjoying each other. And, you know, because the, the rest of the movie was not that lighthearted, so, which is still fun to do. And we all became good friends and would sit and do the crossword puzzle together every day and sit and listen to Robert tell great stories every day. But I think all the stuff out in front of the high school, that was, it was just fun and lighthearted and we, we all had a good time. Yeah, 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 yes. I, I've met Robert a number of times and I love listening to his stories. He's just <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> One of the, yeah. Great back and tour, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, extraordinary, mate, gentlemen. So, a year later, you're now working with 
Lawrence, and you've mentioned uh, Lawrence Kasdan on his rest of masterpiece, Silverado. And again, extraordinary cast. I mean, Kevin Costner, Kevin Klein, Danny Glover, Scott Glenn, and the late, great Brian Dennehy. I mean, that must have been such a different scale, you think, because this is not a independent team. This was a big budget thing, is my memory of it. Yes, very big budget. Um, it was magical. We were in Santa Fe, New Mexico for months and months and months. It was winter. It was cerulean blue skies, snow. It was cold. It was, we were filming at a place called Cook's Ranch. Um, that was magical. And uh, every Saturday night after wrap, um, somebody hosted a uh, Motown party because they had all just finished the Big Chill, which had all that great Motown music. And we had a dance party every Saturday night. And every night after filming, um, everyone went to this little theater in downtown Santa Fe off the plaza and watched the dailies that um, Carol Littleton had set to really fun music. And she was married to John Bailey, the amazing cinematographer that shot that movie. Um, it was just amazing. And we all had fun and laughed constantly. And it was hands down the best experience I've ever had on a, on a set as far as just sheer magic and fun and knowing that you're making something amazing that's classic that's worth your time mm -hmm. <laughs> not, not just working to get your health insurance or something mm -hmm. you know that it, that it was like creative and magical and uh, surrounded by genius and Brian Dennehy one night at dinner said to uh, the young second AD me and it might have been Jeff Fahey said and he said guys need to remember this. This is magic. Movie making is not always like this. You're young, you think you're going to come across this all the time and you won't. Take it in and enjoy it. And he was 100% right because I've never had that experience since um, of just magic. Yes. Well, it's, as you say, just, you know, from a British perspective, of course, it's got the great John Cleese um, in it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like remember because like, John Cleese has made a western what, what's going on in the world wasn't he fabulous I mean it just was like you were like oh you should be in every western yeah I, well it's just such a great I was watching it again this afternoon and I said earlier it's kind of got it's a bit like an Arthurian legend you've basically you've got knights who are going out to right wrongs and they're on their horses. Okay, they've got guns instead of swords and so on, but it's got that kind of mythical quality to it, you know, that these are people who are going to right the wrongs. And Linda Hunt, just oh. extraordinary. She is a genius. She's just surreal. She's so cool. And mm. oh, and just present. So just present to life and everyone around her, open and beautiful. Right, right, right. And then moving on from that, you you mentioned earlier on, you'd done Better Off Dead, uh, directed by um, Savage Steve Holland. What was that experience like? Oh my God, it was so much fun. We had a blast. Okay, <laughs> so I went to Nightmare on Elm Street, which was the end of summer to shooting Better Off Dead. And then we went into, uh, 
we went up to a ski resort. We started filming in Los Angeles and then we shot all the ski stuff at this ski resort in Idaho. Uh, I think it was called Snowbird. And so it was just, you know, John Cusack, me, Diane Franklin and Aaron Dozer were the four kids again. Um, and Steve, Steve, he was only a year older than us. So it was really like all these young people on location <laughs> up in the mountains skiing. And then one old guy from the studio trying to keep it all wrangled in. Um, but we would literally just laugh all day on the set. And then there was this little tram bar in the condos we were staying in and nobody was there. And we'd put on the jukebox and goof around for like an hour and then go to bed. And we just, first of all, Curtis Armstrong is the funniest human being on the planet. And he, Aaron Dozer and John Cusack would just, I was in tears the entire time. Diane Franklin and I have talked about this, um, that how, and we're, we're still all pretty good friends. Um, that, you know, all we did was laugh. Like I, my face hurt every day. And it was just, it was just silly, good fun. And Savage Steve Holland is, I mean, he just has, he's such a good writer, especially for young people. And now he does a ton of children's programming. He directs a lot of, I don't know if it's Nickelodeon or uh, Disney kids or whatever. He's, he writes and directs and produces all these amazing things. He just has a key. He's got like a, just this open youthful heart that where he's able to tell these fantastic stories and some rather dark. I mean, Better Off Dead is incredibly dark, really. When you think about it, it's about a teenager trying to kill himself for two mm. hours. But somehow we laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, horror, Western um, comedies, very different genres you know, particularly in that short period of time, do you have a particular preference for a genre? I think some of the most fun I've had is doing Westerns because I've done, I think four Westerns. I just, I like, I like it. I like the, the women I've gotten to play in Westerns are always pretty strong. I mean, Phoebe, I don't know, in Silverado wasn't necessarily strong. She was like a saloon girl, but she was still super young. And so mm. I always felt like she hadn't that she was probably going to take over for Linda Hunt at some point yeah. if she lived if she, Brian did and he didn't end up killing her or something um because I just did a, a movie last year called Badland where I basically played that character grown up and it was so much fun and then I also in a, a TV movie I played Lizzie Tewksbury from the real feuding Tewksbury's and I forget from history. And I got to play that character and wield a shotgun and try to get people off my land. And then when I was in like the eighties, kind of around the time doing those movies, I did a TV pilot that didn't sell. They turned it into a TV movie, but it was, a, it was called independence, I think. And it was um, a story about, a, it was a family of homesteaders and I wanted it to go so badly. So I think some of the most fun roles I get to play have been in Westerns. Um, I've done a couple other horror films. I truly have to say most of them have been because I needed my health insurance. <laughs> like um, they're not usually the best roles um, for me anyway. Um, I haven't been offered like, you know, uh, you know, like what, like what was the one that uh, came out a couple, you know, like 
a quiet place or or these right. amazing roles. I'm not offered those. They're usually, you know, uh, people that are making a phone, a movie on their iPhone. And I'm like, oh, I need the money. Okay, I'll do this. Um, but, uh, you know, like, what was the one I'm thinking of with Tony Collette? Oh. oh. Heredity. Hereditary. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a role like that would be amazing. The only role I've had that's been like super delicious in a horror film really has been in a movie I did called The Id a couple of years ago where I played this character Meredith, who's a caretaker and, you know, it, it devolves slowly and sadly and hor horrifically. And I, but, you know, I don't get those, I don't get off of those roles. I think there's other kind of, as far as horror goes, there's, like genre scream queens and I'm not really considered one you know what I mean I, I do mm. I do so much television and stuff I'm not really considered like uh, I don't get invited to the classic horror actress panels and things like people are like you're in them but you know uh you know and I'm, I'm not usually the heroic horror person so I would say westerns and obviously I love comedies I mean I started out doing sitcoms so that was always just you know silly good times but now i'm considered a serious actress and nobody hires me for comedy <laughs> so I don't know. isn't it weird isn't it with people yeah because it's so much easier for and one of my questions i was going to ask you do you feel that's because you kind of got trapped in the web, web of nightmare and that having performed that iconic role right that's, that's how people think of you and they they, they pigeonhole us but. Right. I, I think you're right. I think we do get pigeonholed. And also, you know, I'm a woman of a certain age. And so, you know, I'm sort of in the, uh, you know, the handsome lawyer phase of my career, the handsome older woman phase, um, which I'm totally grateful. I'm like not doing plastic surgery, like bring on the age. I'll play granny. I think it'll be fun. Um, I'm a character actress, though. Um, but I do think what has happened is in the horror world anyway. I could win an Oscar and people will still just want to talk about Tina from A Nightmare on Elm Street. So in many ways, it diminishes the my entire legacy in my career. I'm super grateful for everyone, but I would I would just wish people would watch my new stuff and make that as popular. And um, but um, I think, yeah, I mean, I do. I think in some ways, because there's so much material that gluts the market now where, you know, back in our day, there would only be like one or two movies a month would come out. And now there's like 17,000, everything goes straight to streaming. Nobody sees anything anymore. I mean, you know what I mean? Like they just see your social media about it. So I think that, um, you know, yeah. because something I haven't done, I haven't done anything that's hit big since the freaking 80s, that that's kind of where I've been left. And it, I I wish it wasn't that way, but I, you know I can't change how people think or what they want to watch or. Yeah. It doesn't make me happy though. I do. No, <laughs> well, I mean I embrace it and I'm super grateful. I'm just grateful for all of it and any of it and you know all of it. I mean I've been able to it's keep my really, for a million years, so I'm super grateful. Mm, mm, I mean I completely understand that. I was just thinking about you know you become so grateful to it like yourself incredibly grateful i was involved in hellraiser and i've made a career out of it yes 
But when I do a nice independent film, which I really love doing and so on, the people who then reach out to you because they've seen you, in my case, there's a film called Book of Monsters, particularly, I'm thinking about, saying, Nick, really loved you in that part. That was really cool. I just think, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, you don't know how much that means to me because, or if they talk about my writing or something else, you just- You're so incredible. talented. Yeah. You're very talented. Oh. I love your work. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, right back at you, lady. <laughs> it does feel good, right? Because there's also this pressure, you know, and and I mean, and horror fans are amazing. And, and you know, I, people that love Better Off Dead, I mean, that's become a movie families watch every Christmas. And, you know, I'm just so grateful to be a part of everyone's story because they because they've been able to take these movies home. They have very personal stories about them. Silverado too. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, there's just pressure. People are like, you look the same. And it's like, no, I don't. And I don't want that pressure. I'm a grown ass woman now. I'm in a whole other, I'm in the handsome phase of my career. <laughs> That's what I like to call it. You know what I mean? You understand, mm. right? Like, You don't want the pressure of having to be what you were in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely, I mean, it was great. The moment I lost my hair, that never became a problem. <laughs> Throw the beard. Yeah, I'm, get, I'm getting beards too. And hopefully I think I have this. <laughs> God, I'm so jealous of your hair. I do, I do, I have to say. I, I have other complaints, but I have good hair. <laughs> great teeth. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier on, you know, you're lucky enough to have done both film and TV. I was curious to you, how do you or approach the two different things? Do you feel differently about the two different mediums? Is there a marked difference in your the way you think about filming for TV or doing a feature film? Um. I'm curious what you think about that too. Um, this is what I think. Back in the day, like when I was doing big studio films where you had yeah. months to make a film and really grow and take your time over a character arc or whatever, in films like Better Off Dead and mm. Silverado and a couple other ones, where TV was like, boom, boom, boom. You've got to, you're basically telling the same kind of story, but you're doing it in eight days. And I was yeah. like, oh, this is so fast and it's so hard. And then independent film came out where they're like, we're gonna shoot, you know, 20 pages a day and pay you a dollar. And <laughs> it's gonna be the worst movie ever made. And we're so glad you're in it. And then I was like, oh my God, now TV is a freaking luxury where I'm like, oh my God, I have eight days to like do four scenes and be this guest star. And I'm like, so I think it, they, you know, as far as time goes, that's completely flip-flop. And I wonder if you agree with me about that. Yeah, and, and, you know, yeah no, absolutely. I'm, to be honest, I've not done that much TV. Uh, I did some back in the aces, um, just bit parts here and there. But I mean, I see it. I mean, particularly in the difference between... <laughs> Um, I, I think what's really changed is, I mean, Hellraiser was in, considered an independent film when it was first made because it was it was New World Pictures, um, but it was pretty big. Oh, it, it was the budget was under it was the original budget was nine hundred thousand dollars, and then when they literally when they saw the footage, they gave they bumped it up to one point one million. 
so that they could go in and do a whole load of animatronic stuff and and special effects stuff and so on just to kind of up the value uh of it so yeah it was it was a small it was kind of low you know it was a fairly low budget even for the you know for those days um i but as you say i think you have these independent companies now who are doing extraordinary things and sometimes it works better than it does others and as you say listen we're all grateful for the work because we all have to eat and pay bills and and so and to be honest i just love working on films i love working with other actors i like reading scripts i like doing stuff you know we, we just like working so yeah i think it has changed but then when when you meet i've mentioned book of monsters and i've called them out just because they were so well organized and that was one of my most fun shoots because they were yes they had limited time they had a limited budget but they they knew that and they had prepared they had prepared so well literally everything you know things rang like clockwork everyone knew what they were doing everyone so it was so when you went in you kind of felt safe and, and so on whereas other stuff is kind of like you feel as if you're doing it on the hoof yes yes <laughs> no, that is so beautifully said everything you just said because there's a couple like i mentioned the id that i did a couple years ago mm. and then the western i did last year badland they were both i would say micro budget movies but it was like clockwork all the proper people were on set there was amazing wardrobe, amazing hair and makeup, uh, fantastic cinematographers and camera crew and sound crew, um, the, the, the elements needed to actually make, I, in my opinion, a good film. Um, yeah. uh, so it can be done. I think there's a lot of people who try to reinvent the wheel and it's just a wheel that can't be reinvented. I mean, I think maybe if you're a genius, like maybe there's one or two people that come along every couple of years where they're like, I shot this whole movie by myself, no sound, no anything. And everyone's like, this is amazing. It wins best picture, but that's like a rarity. Um, but uh, I think like it's as far as um, TV goes, sorry, there's a bug on my computer that cannot live there. <laughs> We're not welcome. Um, <laughs> I just murdered it. Sorry, people. Um, um, It'll be reincarnated uh, soon. It's fine. It's going to come and get me in the next horror movie. Um, uh, the thing that, the, when you asked about TV too, mm. uh, my experience has always been, I've had much better roles in television overall. Mm. There's tended to be really fantastic guest star and recurring roles where they're just characters that for whatever reason people were writing in television and not necessarily in movies um so you know i think that i think so uh, i i i mean tv's my first love i think because of that because the roles i get to audition for and do for the most part overall like the sheer mm. volume of them are just way better roles you know than i get offered in 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 um, movies in my opinion except for right. the id badland um you know obviously back in the 80s but just i'm like people that are mm, willing mm. hiring me now i tend to get 
uh, I put my, I put more eggs in the TV basket just because, um, uh, you know, there I can play like a whole character where often now in movies, I'm the mom and I come in, I set up the movie in like one or two scenes. And then I come back at the end of the film and reveal something. And I'm like, okay, I've done that like four times in the last four years over it. <laughs> like, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm moving on. <laughs> Have you, I, I was curious, is a, a, a reaction to a lot of that, I think for many of us is to kind of start putting together our own projects right. in terms of either writing, directing or producing. Have you ever attempted anything like that or any interest in doing something like that I do have interest in it but I think I'm intrinsically lazy <laughs> so I have a million really good ideas and um, I don't really follow through but I I do have like a little secret dream that's not so secret because I'm telling you but that I would like to direct um, I would like to move to the other side of the camera at some point. Um, so I do shadow directors on films and stuff. I haven't been able to shadow anyone on TV um, yet, but I will. And um, and then, you know, I want to I want to um, play the mayor of small towns in Hallmark Christmas movies. That's that's my goal. I want to be the mayor or the the quirky old lady who runs the flower shop who everyone goes to. Um, in Hallmark Christmas movies and Lifetime, Lifetime too. So those are that's what <laughs> you do my well. dreams are big. <laughs> my dreams I, are big. So suddenly I've got the Gilmore Girls going through my head, and it's exactly. just like, yeah, I could it's, see. I'm, yeah. in, I'm in the quirky flower shop owner phase. So or the mayor, the crotchety mayor, who wears fabulous suits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see you doing that very, very well. I Thank can you. see. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, okay, I'm going to move away from all that stuff and okay. move on to something which I refer to as the luggage in the crypt. Okay. Which is my just kind of my way of delving a little bit deeper. So the setup is you're on your about to take your last great adventure, and you've got to be you've been told you've got to bring your own entertainment. So what film would you take with you? Love Actually. Oh, now why Love Actually? Because I've probably seen that movie a hundred times. My boyfriend even bought me the script from it because I've watched it so many times. He's never watched it. It's not his thing. Um, I love that movie. There's three that I rotate. No, four. Notting Hill, The Holiday, not the not the old really really amazing one, but the new one, the holiday, and um, for the love of the game. Those are my rom com love things that I rotate. But I would say, in a pinch, I'd grab love actually because it never disappoints me. There are some amazing moments in that film. There really are. I, I, it's turning up at the door and having to use the cards to communicate. There's the moment. Emma Thompson realizes her husband's having an affair. An affair. Oh, when she's up in the bedroom listening to Joni Mitchell. <gasps> it's like, and I now can't remember the actress's name, but there's the lady who's rather kind of shy and has to look after her brother, and basically it becomes a choice between the codependent brother and the God, the handsome 
<laughs> boys, <laughs> boys, like boys <laughs> who went on to do 300 uh, so but yeah i know i can understand it's a, i've not watched it in a long time but i know what you, you, you and you you grant and oh. yeah. who i met once I met Hugh Grant once on a train traveling up to the Edinburgh Festival. And he was with a company, it was a fringe company. And all I remember is, well, I went to see their show and it was just three, four guys together performing these sketches. It was just a sketch comedy show, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And it was the um, children's and I mean toddlers guide to sex <laughs> and I can't remember if it was him who played Mr Penis but it was, uh, it was <laughs> sorry children watching um, <laughs> it's like, I know I, I remember looking into those blue eyes and just thinking yeah you're gonna do really really well in this <laughs> really really well in this business okay so there's a film what about a book a Prayer for Owen Meany. Oh, I don't know this one. John Irving. Um, it's so good. It's so good. And they made a movie. It's fine. The book, if you ever get a chance to read it, it's, I've probably read that. I mean, I read a lot, but I, that's a book that I've read multiple, multiple times. Right. right. It, I, I love it. It, it breaks my heart and takes me away on a really bizarre and beautiful journey and the title of the book again is a prayer for a prayer for owen meany a prayer for owen meany i shall check this out i shall have this to my this is the great thing about this show is because i ask these people and i'm actually building up a big stack <laughs> <laughs> a big list of books and films and i think that sounds really fascinating okay i shall definitely check that one what about a musical album Sounds by the Beach Boys. Ah. The best. It's like every song is perfect. Oh, wow. And I can understand because you, you, you know, this kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier on, you know, fast times at Richmond High. And uh, so, yeah. Okay. Got that. Favorite food? Pasta. <laughs> 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 you join Malcolm McDowell on that one um, <laughs> I mean it just never disappoints no matter what I, I mean I'm, I'm a pretty good cook I can do lasagna I could do stuffed shells you just no matter what you do you throw some toasted pine nuts in it <laughs> some cheese on top you literally can't mess it up and it's always delicious <laughs> have you ever made your own pasta no only once only once we're going to go back to that. I'm a little bit lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did an Italian cookery course at a you know, day thing. I got terribly inspired and bought the machine and literally was just used once before it gets like. Oh, yeah, no. I do use the spiralizer for zucchini pasta. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean you know, zucchini. But, but yeah, that's a great, that's a great, that's cool. a great invention. Yeah, we do that. I don't have that for a while. I was, Sounds point. good, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's very good. We have it. You'd have it with prawns and spaghetti and and, and not spawn, prawns, and but prawns and yeah, yeah, spiralized oh, zucchini. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What about a piece of visual art? I'd take a globe. Oh, interesting. 
I know that it's not a famous painting. No, that's fine. But it would just keep me to remember like where I come from and that there's still possibilities and where I am in the world. And I don't know, there's usually like a little angel like looking down on the thing. I don't know. I feel like it would remind you to stay grounded yet connected to everything. Really interesting. What's any particular style of globe? Just a modern, you know, something like a, a huge projection of Google Earth, that kind of detail, oh, or like those old tiny ones that are on the the, the arc, and they have a base, and you can mm -hmm. spin them around and point out places. And um, sometimes, like they'll be like, like it's like a lot of people used to put angels on maps for some yeah, yeah. reason. So like maybe like on the wooden part have angels engraved. So there's just something that keeps you connected to the all. And yet, I don't know, it just seems like it'd be positive and you could just always know where you are in the world and maybe you'll get to go someplace else or um, I don't know, it gives you something to do. You can spin it around. <laughs> you can move I, it around different lights. <laughs> that's a lovely choice. I like, I like that. That's yeah, because I know what you mean by the old ones that are on the kind of because I've always wanted to own a globe. I never, I never have. I mean, we used we to have, have big. Act we have light up globes. Yes, the ones that I remember as a kid, where you kind of they've got two shells basically. When the lights off, it shows you the geographical, and then when you turn the light on, it shows you the political lines. We yes. used to have that. Yeah, yeah, yes, I remember those in the shops, and you have yeah, amazing light up globes and so on. And and they also have big ones that you can open up and there's a bar in it. So you could actually take that one, you know, that you could set in your library, lift open the lid and have your scotch and bourbon or whatever. I, Spin the globe. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. That's the sort to go for. Definitely, that is definitely the sort to go for. What about a luxury? My favorite cashmere sweater. My Louis Vuitton handbag. I don't know. I don't know no, what I do with that. <laughs> I, I like the idea of a favorite cashmere sweater because they are just <laughs> so. If you're, if you're only grabbing a few things, yeah. it's super luxurious and soft, and reminds you that as you're grabbing these things, that very few things that um, to remind yourself to treat yourself well. Yeah, yeah, I get that, and I think. I was suddenly thinking, I think I've, in my life, I've had a number of favorite jumpers. Yes. And I don't, I'm no, I don't remember the favorite trousers or anything, or one or two shirts, button-down shirts, really, really nice button-down shirts, but favorite jumper. Jumpers were always, you know, particularly this time of year. Yeah, yeah. Great, May great. May I ask you a question? Where does jumper come from? Like, what's the origin of it being called a jumper? I've always wanted to ask someone that. I have no idea. I really should ask my husband. I'm going to have to ask my husband. And if find I find that. the answer, I will put a thing at the bottom you of the screen. <laughs> the reason I'm asking my husband is because he knits. Um, I, I, he's just... In fact, he's going to be knitting. He's just finishing off a jumper for himself. And then we've been discussing... In fact... He knitted me a, a chatterer jumper, uh, which I <laughs> literally proper jumper, but with the chatterer on the chest. I, he, he, 
he's he's the he's the man who may well know that if not him then one of his friends at his knit group his local knit group will know the answer to where the jumper is first of all he sounds fantastic (laughs) that's so so romantic to knit someone a, a jumper i he's he's amazing he really is this is what he gives his gifts to people and it's um yeah what a great way to end this interview talking about how wonderful my husband is i really must get him to watch this one (laughs) (laughs) and you too i just i'm so thrilled that i got to chat with you and get to know you a little better i feel like i didn't let you talk enough i'd like to know more about you hey this this is me asking but I know what you mean. And what I have to say is I've really loved about doing all of these shows is that the fact that I'm actually now getting to meet people properly who I've seen at conventions and we've probably maybe done dinner together or something. But honestly, I love these things, just chatting with friends. This has been wonderful. And I don't do a lot of these. um, And I'm super glad I got to do this with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And so wish you all the best. And when I next meet you sometime next year, probably, I shall expect to hear about what you're doing about becoming a director. Thank you. (laughs) And play, play, and and I want, I'll let you know my progress of trying to get myself insinuated into all the Hallmark movies. I'll let you know know where I'm at with that. That's my big dream at the moment. Right. And I look forward to you and I are going out to dinner when we meet next. Yes. Yes. Perfect. Absolutely wonderful. Amanda, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I wish you all the best and please stay safe and well. You too. You too. Sending you so much love. (laughs) Such a sweet and warm and lovely person and such great stories. Thank you very much indeed for joining me and hopefully I'll see you on the next one. In the meantime, stay safe and well. The Chattering Hour is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West, composer Kevin McLeod.